0: Good morning. Oh, one of my favorite things about Wellspring this year has been hearing the disciplines rehearsed each week so differently. Um, I was telling someone halfway through Wellspring, probably like in December, I was we were just talking about different lessons that have been impactful. And I just said, you know, one of the things I love is how fresh every week I feel like Jamie and Chris and Suzanne have made the disciplines. Like they just... They need to be repetitive. We need to hear them. But it's so good. I can tell that they're so intentional in trying to make them fresh and explaining them differently each week. So here's um, another attempt on their part to make them fresh. And it was so good to hear from Mandy, too, a couple weeks ago. So um, let's go ahead and remind ourselves again of the disciplines. And you can flip your um, binder over to the back. We're going to remind ourselves of how we always start with shepherding the inner person of the heart. Another way that we could say this is that we're shepherding our minds, we're shepherding our wills, we're shepherding the invisible part of us. Okay. So discipline one, she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. And I wanted to read to you a verse that comes to mind when I think of shepherding my own heart. It's 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but these weapons have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. There is a war going on in our minds due to our flesh that still resides in us, and now due to the presence of the Holy Spirit that indwells us now that we're believers. So really we shouldn't be trusting our natural impulses, our thoughts, or our feelings. We need to put our hearts before God's word so that we're able to see whether we're thinking in a way that's contrary to God's truth or even whether we're feeling in a way that's contrary to God's truth if we're going to be transformed and have renewed minds, we must put God's word in our hearts so that we can think God's thoughts instead of our natural, self-centered, self-glorifying thoughts. This first discipline, Discipline 1, is how we can put into practice 2 Corinthians 10, which is taking our thoughts captive, making them obedient to Christ. We can only destroy the arguments from our flesh and the lofty opinions raised up against the knowledge of God by taking our thoughts captive and choosing to have thoughts that obey Christ. We need God's word to penetrate our hearts. And because of that need, we prayerfully come to meet with God in his word, remembering the good news that Jesus has purchased a sinner, you and me, with his blood. Discipline two, the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. To minister means to give service, to give care, or to give aid. It also means to attend to. So we serve and we attend to those in our household with a heart that's been made new. And with a heart that loves our Savior and the good news. Because we are aware of how God has been merciful to us, and how he's ever patient with us, and he's ever with us, we're going to be better able to honor him and display the gospel's effect on a life, on our the gospel's effect on our life and how we live with and serve those in our homes. Listen to Proverbs 31, 26. And this is just a little picture, a little part of the big picture of the woman that's described in Proverbs 31. So verse 36 says, She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Isn't that what we'd like to be? Someone who opens her mouth to counsel a roommate and wisdom comes out. Someone who opens her mouth to encourage her husband, and wisdom comes out. Someone who opens her mouth to teach, train, or correct her child, and wisdom comes out. It's so clear that Discipline 2 starts with and can only happen after Discipline 1 has been taking place and is in effect. Wisdom, kindness, and the gospel will come out of our mouths when we have been prayerfully feeding our souls with God's word and putting it into practice. Discipline 3. Ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel, and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And so the verse that I picked to go with this is um, 1 Timothy 5. It's a list that Paul gives to Timothy of like, character qualities of the widows. These are the people that he's saying, okay, find women that their family can't take care of them. But here's character qualities of them. So it might seem a little strange, but I think these are character qualities that we should aspire to. It says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. As we take care of our hearts and minister to those within our homes, we need to lift our eyes up and out to the others that God would have us serve and care for as we live on this earth. We get to care for others in the body of Christ. We've each been gifted with God's grace, and we can use that grace to serve others and care for our spiritual brothers and sisters. And again, this type of service and ministry will be gospel-centered and Christ-exalting as long as we are continuing to take care of our inner person with God's word and by our obedience to Christ. As we are faithful to spiritually care for and serve the people closest to us, those in our household, we will be able to serve and spiritually care for others outside of our home with integrity. So let's ask God to help us to persevere in these disciplines. Heavenly Father, um, I'm so thankful for this morning, so thankful that we get to come here each week and be encouraged to do what we know that we need to do, um, which is feed our souls, to um, sit at your feet and to open your word and Um, open our heart to your word. I pray, God, that you would help us to uh, do that even when we don't feel like it and to um, be able to carve out time and make it a priority. I pray, God, that we would shepherd our hearts and our thoughts throughout the day to take them captive and make them obedient to the truth that's in your word. Um, It's so easy for us to be misguided by our flesh and misguided by our own natural Feelings and thoughts and by the culture and the world around us I just ask God for help and for strength and I know that you are ready and willing to give that and I pray too God that you would help us to be faithful to care for those in our households that we would love them that we would um, serve them and that the service that and the love that comes out of us is grounded in the gospel it's grounded in um, being sure of your love for us and how you act towards us I pray God that wisdom would come out when we open our mouths and I also pray God that you would help us to lift our eyes up and out to those around us in our body people that you have sovereignly placed in the circles of our lives I pray that we would be able to see the needs and um, be able to serve in in your name and for for your glory and for their good Um, not forsaking anything before that not forsaking our hearts or the people that you place nearest to us but um, I pray that it would just be an overflow and something that we could even lead our households and um, our children, or roommates, in serving others. And God, we pray that you would be honored by this morning. I pray for Suzanne. Just ask God that you would give her um, a calm heart, and I pray that your word would do its work in our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Janet.
1: Thank you, thank you. Oh, that was really helpful. It, um, I love how God shows himself real to us, and there were verses that she shared that I'm going to share in my lesson as well. So that's really cool, how God orchestrates and puts all things together. Um, I have a quick announcement I'm going to make before we um, start. Maggie is looking for two extra volunteers next week, and will be over here teaching us next week, and um, somebody else is going to have to be gone. So if you can raise your hand or let us know or stop by and let Maggie know if you can help next week, that would be really great. Another opportunity to serve the body. So we are going to be looking at Proverbs 14:1 today. We're going to be in Proverbs. We're going to be back in Galatians. We kind of be um, throughout. We won't be flipping a whole lot, but if you want to open to Proverbs 14:1. We'll read God's word together. You might have it memorized as well. The wise woman builds her house. But the foolish tears it down with her own hands. Short verse, packed full of wisdom. So again, would you pray with me as we start our morning? Oh Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your law. Lord, we come unto your word this morning as those who have been redeemed by Christ, our Savior. And we thank you for the gift of salvation to those who are lost in darkness. Thank you for your word that shows us your character, shows us who you are. We can know you, Lord. You are slow to anger, and you are abounding in love. You do not treat us as our sins deserve. So, Lord, we need you now as we come before your word, under your word, that you might be our teacher this morning. And we look forward to what you're going to do in us for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So homes were designed to be a place of protection, fellowship, rest, instruction, and hospitality. They're designed to be a place of provision and nurture for shared joys and burdens. A wise woman blesses those who God has placed in her household. She'll order her household with with diligence, intentionally loving and doing good and not harm to those who live there with her. She takes great pains to profit those in her home. The foolish woman, on the other hand, tears her house down, even though she may do it inadvertently. She might be given to contentiousness, or ungratefulness, or bitterness, using her words as demolition tools and demolishing her home. The foolish woman will destroy not only her home, those things most precious to her, the people in it as well. So at times, by God's grace, I think we would all admit that we act as wise women. And there are other times that we look more like the foolish woman in Proverbs. Because we've learned that at any given time, what's in our hearts is going to overflow into those around us. There's really no middle ground. We're either building up or we are tearing down. As you and I are diligent to renew our minds with Scripture, rather than being more familiar with the voices of the world that are screaming to us constantly by knowing God and knowing his word and being a doer of his word as well, we can be master builders by his grace rather than demolition experts. So can you picture that big old black wrecking ball swinging against a building and immediately it's, it's demolished, it's gone. Or perhaps maybe another, in contrast, is a termite just eating away little by little. It's unseen for a while, but the structure is being damaged. And left unchecked, those little bugs will destroy a home completely. So think about a woman building her home brick by brick, mortar by mortar, layering upon layering. And then she opens her mouth, not with wisdom, as we just heard, but with unkind words, or a harsh attitude, or an impatient or critical spirit. She tears down that home just as quickly It's not anything a woman would want, but so many women do, because the aim at that moment is not to glorify God, but to glorify self. We are driven more than by personal desire, personal gain, than God's glory, and we will ruin a household. Through our attitudes and words and our behavior, we have the power to bless and to build up those around us. And we also have the power to destroy and to tear down. So on your outline, there's an introduction section. Proverbs 12, 18. It's, there is one whose rash words are like a sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It examines all sorts of um, situations in life and evaluates. Is this wise or is this foolish? It's very clear That a fool's only hope is for God, the all-wise God, to make one wise. Right? Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. And when God gives wisdom to a fool, that one is cured of his foolishness. His affections, desires, his wants, his thinking and living are transformed. The foolish one is given a new heart and he has a new identity in Christ. Only God can do that. Only God can change the hearts of men. And we find in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that although the message of the cross is foolishness to the fools and to those who are perishing, it is the power of God to salvation for all who will believe. Christ has come for the believer, wisdom from God. So we learn that wisdom comes from God. Proverbs also tells us that we participate in pursuing, growing, and obtaining wisdom. So would you turn to Proverbs um, 2. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 6. And here's a call to strenuous search for wisdom. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you will call out for wisdom and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And that chapter goes on to tell us the great value and wisdom. Can we be wise and yet be foolish women? We can, right? We continue to remind each other of our mixed condition. Remember our three Ps? The power of sin has been broken, and the penalty for sin has been paid by Christ on the cross. But the presence of sin still remains. We have sin's residue on our hearts. And Janet explained that to us again just a minute ago. In our state of darkness, separated from God, we had no understanding of our sin. We were in an unmixed condition. We could only ever sin. Then God gives grace, changes the heart of a fool, and um, he comes to us. And we believe in Christ. In this state of sanctification now, we battle sin in our hearts. Though the penalty has been paid and the power has been broken, the presence now we are aware as that conflicting state is going on in our hearts. Do you ever feel like as you grow closer to the Lord, you become more sinful, like you're more aware of that sin? And that's because he's made us aware of that sin against a holy God. In actuality, he's purifying his beloved bride. And so we can thank him for that. And one day, soon, we'll be in another unmixed condition, never to sin again. We will be with Jesus for eternity. So when we see fool in scripture, we can think two different ways. We can think this is one whose only hope is for God to give him a new heart. Or, is this one who knows God, but is at this moment acting foolishly? Is the flesh taking over? Proverbs is not speaking to us as followers of Christ about our salvation status. We're no longer fools because God the Father has adopted us as his children. But to help us evaluate the residue left. When we see ourselves in Proverbs... As we bring our hearts before God's word, laid bare before it, and we see wisdom in it, we praise God for his mercy toward us. It's evident of his grace. And when we see foolishness in our lives, we look to God's grace. We look to him in the gospel for the power to change, to turn from that foolishness, and to walk in wisdom, to walk in that newness of life that he has promised to us. We want to be too sure to understand what a Proverb is, right? A Proverb is usually a short saying which gives insight into human behavior, but it cannot be interpreted as prophecy, promise, or absolute doctrine. So here's an example from Proverbs 16:7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. Well, that's true, generally speaking. However, we know that Jesus' ways were always pleasing to the Father. That his enemies were not at peace with him. That doesn't mean the proverb is wrong. It just means that it's not a promise or a doctrine. It's a wise saying. So I might say I fear the Lord, but if I look at Proverbs and see that my life is better described as foolish, I need to examine myself. Do I truly know this God of the Word? Have I turned to him in repentance and faith? Or am I deceiving myself, thinking I fear the Lord, but in reality I'm acting foolishly? Am I blind to an area of my life that I don't see, that I don't fear the Lord? And again, it's God's mercy to us when our sin is revealed. We're thankful that our faithful Father is kind to reveal our foolishness to us and help us to grow in grace. As I've prepared this lesson, I have remembered past foolishness. And if the Lord left me there, it would be a great destruction in my home today. So I am thankful for his care of us. We don't fear God's penetrating light from his word, right? As a refiner refines gold, it has to be heated up 7 times over, and each time more dross comes to the top and it's skimmed off, and what's left is a more purified gold. That's what God is a picture of what God is doing in us as he brings that up. So on to Proverbs 14:1. 1. Every one of us has some sort of house. We have a physical house, a home. Some live with family, some with roommates, it might be that you've invited a missionary family into your home for a season, or that you have extended house guests. Maybe you're women living alone. We all seasons for us all change. But it's yet still important for us to understand. We keep the wellspring verse always before us, and Janet reminded us again, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Everything we do and say and think begins first in our heart. Well we can be builders. Or we can be demolition experts. We can be wise women, fully dependent on God and his word. We build up, figuratively, the prosperity of our household. Or we can be foolish women, trusting in our own understanding, being stubborn or obstinate. So on your outline, number one is wise women in Proverbs. There's some descriptions there of a wise woman. She is gracious. A gracious woman attains honor. She's prudent. A prudent wife is from the Lord. An excellent, an excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above rubies. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. What makes this woman excellent? The fear of the Lord. The wise is often seen in two different ways. So on your outline, two important characteristics of the wise. The first one is how we listen. The wise woman is teachable. There's an eagerness to receive instruction and learning as well as rebuke and discipline. Does this describe you? Does it describe me? A wise woman is on a full-on pursuit to grow in her understanding and to grow in her grasp of the gospel. She continues to saturate herself in gospel truths and realities and tries, strives to know them more and more. How does this gospel intersect with my life? She seeks to remember that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. A wise woman has nothing to dread because she's drawn upon the cross of Christ. This woman who trusts in Jesus no longer comes to him in her own righteousness of which she has none anyway. She comes in his righteousness. The deeper the understanding of our own sin and the holiness of God, the sweeter his mercy becomes. The more bitter sin becomes, the sweeter love for Jesus becomes. So I'm just going to read down on your outline from Proverbs 8.33. A wise woman heeds instruction and doesn't neglect it. She loves the one who reproves her. We don't see our blind spots, do we? That's why they're called blind spots. We need each other. We need each other to help so we're driving down a car and you glance at the rearview mirror and you glance at this mirror and if you don't quickly give that left-hand turn, left-hand look, you're going to be one with the guy beside you, right? Well, it's the same way. We don't see that spot. We need others to help us. We are instrument in the Redeemer's hand. Proverbs 8 and 15:31 says a wise woman receives commands and she listens to life-giving reproof, unlike the babbling fool who will be ruined. 1920, a wise woman listens to counsel and accepts discipline. A wise woman, when she is taught, becomes wiser still. And a wise woman also listens to wisdom. So we see that a teachable spirit begins with a spirit of humility that recognizes we know so little of God's word and we apply even less of what we do know. It's a spirit that recognizes we have much sin left in our hearts. And we want to change. We want to be eager to change. It might be inviting others to speak into your life, like we did in our lesson a few weeks ago. What do you see in my life that you think I need attention to? So the second outline is the wise woman speaks. Proverbs 16.23, the heart of the wise instructs his mouth. Jesus made the same point in Luke 6.45. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Challenges will come. You and I will sin, and we will be sinned against. Whatever is in my heart is going to be revealed. We need to spend ourselves to know the gospel truth, so that what spills out is gospel truth and realities, and that others are drawn to him. The prayer that Scott shared with us in the beginning of the year, you should have it in your um, notebooks, a handout of a helpful prayer. And it's um, been helpful to help me keep my heart engaged and reminding me about these things. And one of the paragraphs reads, I desire my heart and mind to be full of you because of what your word reveals to me about you. I long for you to spill out of me into my home and wherever you lead me today. All who come in contact with me today must interact with a woman whose heart has drawn near to you. Their best hope for salvation or for growth in the gospel will come from one who has searched for you in your word and gazed upon the sun in the gospel. So look at what scripture um, says about our words, starting in Proverbs 10.19, under that same section, A wise woman restrains her lips. A wise woman isn't rash, but rather her tongue brings healing. A wise woman's teaching is a fountain of life. It turns away, aside, the snares of death. And she protects. And a wise woman makes knowledge acceptable, and her lips spread knowledge. All of these verses show us that we must guard our heart well, right? So that what comes forth from our mouth is helpful and protective, instructive and winsome. We are sinners living with sinners. The question is then, how will I respond? Will I build up or will I tear it down? Will I respond in light of the gospel? There are riches in the storehouse that God has given us to speak rightly and to build up and to be intentional. So we can summarize one who is wise by how we listen and how we speak. So the platform has been set for our words, but Proverbs speak to many other ways, right? There are many ways that we're not going to be able to touch on this morning of ways that we build up or tear down our homes. We're going to just touch this morning on um, the next blank. And it's um, Proverbs speaks several warnings against the sexually immoral woman. And we're not going to spend a lot of time, but there are references if you want to take that and um, spend some more time studying that this week. But we do need to understand what sexual immorality is. What is it? And that sounds like a funny question to ask. And yet in today's world, there are a lot of people who say that's something that she does or he does. What someone else does. But biblically, God calls us to be pure. That means that how we view others, we want to view them as brothers and sisters. And we want to seek to speak and to act and to dress. Even to think in a way that does them good, that helps them see Christ in us, and spurs them on to love, and to, to God, and to be pure. The only relationship that is this this is supposed to go on beyond is to those who are married, the relationship with that one man. And in that context, sex is good. It's not immoral. It's pure, and it's God-pleasing, God-honoring. But bringing sex, or being sexually provocative, or immodest in my dress, or as Jesus said, even thinking sinfully, sexually about another person, is sexual immorality. But like any sin, sexual immorality is birthed in the heart. Even if we think we aren't behaving in a way that's sexually immoral, we need to ask ourselves, check our hearts. So we ask, where are my affections? Do I desire what I shouldn't? Am I content with what God has given me? Or has not given me right now? Those kinds of questions can help us identify or if there are any roots of sexual immorality in our hearts. And the next blank on your outline, Proverbs warns against idleness throughout Proverbs. And again, we just had a great sermon a few weeks ago. Um, idleness tears down our homes. Here are some questions for another check. Whom do I serve? Am I a hectic sluggard? busy, busy. Busy. But never accomplishing anything? Do I neglect priorities God has for me? Do I do what I want to do? Laziness or idleness also tears down. It's characteristic of a foolish woman and it's rooted in self love. It's the ability to take myself off the hook, it's a willingness to permit others, I'm sorry, ourselves, not to do the things we should do. It's believing that good things should come my way without really having to put much forth for that. It's opting for what's comfortable for me, rather than what's best for others. Laziness is always self-focused and self-excusing. It's undisciplined and unmotivated. It expects more from others than we require from ourselves, and it demands good things without investing in them. All of these warnings are very serious, and the references are in your notes for the immoral and the idle woman. We're going to focus today most on contentiousness. We want to be ready to use our words to build up. I think it's where we fall so often. So the next blank is contentiousness, a contentious woman. The word contentious is to be given to angry debate. She's quarrelsome. It's strife. It's discord. So let's look at the foolish woman in Proverbs. Number three. Proverbs 19.13 The contentions of a wife are constant dripping. It is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. It's better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. And vexing here means to provoke, to stir up, to irritate, to stress, to debate in anger. And it goes on in Proverbs 27. A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and the contention, contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. And one of the most sobering examples of contentiousness in the word is seen in the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings. And that's from Exodus 17. And I'm going to kind of skim through 1 through 7. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. And there was not water for the people to drink. They had a real need. They needed water. But the problem was in their response to this need. reminds me of the lesson Tom Inks did a couple of weeks ago. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Do you ever find yourself grumbling and complaining? Probably not after Josh's sermon a few weeks ago. There are signs of contention and we tear our homes down and relationships are torn down when our heart is filled with discontent. Thankfulness cultivated will kill contentiousness. Thankfulness cultivated in our hearts kills contentiousness. Thinking on all that God has done for us as believers, what we truly deserve and what he's given us, and all that he gives us now to enjoy in earthly blessings is a sure way to battle this sin of contention. God was gracious to his people, as he is to us. In spite of their sinful responses, he provided their need, water. But the passage goes on to give us the lesson God had for them. In verse 7, he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Well, what can we learn from this? genuine need does not excuse a sinful response We can learn that contentiousness breeds more sin right one sin is rooted in another grumbling, complaining, fear and three, complaining fails to acknowledge what is true about God and his faithfulness God's view of contentiousness is that we are actually testing him we're not believing that he's among us or that he cares, or that he's at work for our good. We're not trusting God's goodness to us when we complain that what we have at this moment is best for us right now. It will do us good to look again to the cross. God provided for our greatest need on the cross, and he will provide for us in every other way. This pattern shows up all through the 40 years of Israel's wandering to the very near end they had 40 years of God's faithfulness to them and yet they continued to complain so let me ask you when has God not been faithful to you never Proverbs reveals that contention is stirred up by anger a man of wrath stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression and a hot tempered man stirs up strife but he who is slow to anger quiets contention And by arrogance, a greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. And by gossip, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and when there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. Contention also creates defensiveness. Contentions are like the bars of a citadel. When a city was under attack, the people of the city would bar themselves in for protection. This type of defensive action, though, in a home, brings division, and it's destructive. There is a contention and one party hides away. You won't get to me. I'm safe here. I'm not vulnerable to attack. Whom among us has not been hurt by words of another? Who hasn't regretted something we ourselves have said? Who among us can say, My words are always appropriate to the situation and they are always kindly spoken? None of us. Well, Jesus is the word. In John 1.1 1, 1, he says, In the beginning was the word And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the only hope for our words. Apart from Him, we can do no good thing. Paul Tripp writes that speaking redemptively is all about choosing our words carefully. It's not just about the words we say, but also the words we choose not to say. We refuse to let our talk be driven by passion and personal desire, but communicating instead with God's purposes in view. It's exercising the faith needed to be part of what God's doing at that moment. This faith and trust in God keeps us from grumbling and complaining. God's wise, redemptive purpose is to use our relationships as a workroom for their ongoing work of sanctification. In all of our relationships, hearts are going to be exposed. But there can be change as we come under Him in submission to His words. We can trust Him. He has promised to finish the work that he has begun in each one of us. Instead of demanding change in another, we want to learn what it means to speak redemptively in the face of disappointment, hurt, failure, and sin. All common experiences in a fallen world. And that's exactly our chart that Tom gave us a couple of weeks ago. What does it mean for us to choose words, our words wisely, to speak redemptively, to forsake contention? We're going to look at a couple of passages that point out the way of change. Both of these passages define what it is to choose our words, to be part of what God is doing. And that's in Galatians 5, starting in verse 13. For you who are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So he says, do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Are our relationships shaped by the rule of love? Are they showing forth the servant posture we're called to in Galatians 5? We seek God to reveal how we could be used to encourage another and support what God's doing in their life right now. We want to obey God when he says spur one another on to love and good deeds. We make it our aim to look for ways to comfort, to strengthen, to encourage, to warn, to teach others. It's important to view the difficulty that maybe is presenting itself right now as an opportunity to minister God's grace. We look to serve and not be served. This builds up our homes. It is here in this passage that it's particularly helpful because it tells us that the opposite of serving in love is is not a lack of love or a lack of service, but an active indulging in the sinful nature. Either I'm living as a servant of the Lord and accepting His call to serve those around me, or I am living to gratify the cravings of my sinful nature and expecting others to to satisfy those cravings as well. And we're not going to turn there, but the other passage is James 4. And he explains desires, how those desires affect um, the dynamics of a relationship. He says, what causes, fights, and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. So looking at verse 14, he says, the entire law is summed up in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. This is also a significant insight. The problems in a relationship are not fundamentally horizontal, person to person, but vertical, person to God. If I'm living for God's glory, if I hold that as my personal goal, then my own, if I hold that more highly than uh, my own personal happiness, if my love for Him stands above my love for anyone or anything else, including myself, then my practical goal in life will be to please God in everything. Everything I do, everything I say, wherever he puts me. One sure fruit of such a heart committed to God is that we will love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus says something helpful here as we seek to understand our relationship. Human conflict is rooted in spiritual adultery. When I desire for a certain thing that replaces love for God as the controlling force in my heart, the result will be conflict in my relationships. Conflict, again, has vertical roots that produce the horizontal fruit of fighting and quarreling. Love for God that makes me want to keep His law will always result in practical love toward my husband, my children, my roommate, my mom, my dad. And in verse 15, he says, If you keep on, you will devour one another. Communication is designed to build up, to strengthen and encourage. Rather than being skilled and taking chunks out of one another, we want to be... Um, encouraging, open our mouths with the law of wisdom. If our words are more like threatening, critical, condemning, judgmental, malicious, we don't need a radical change in vocabulary as much as we need a radical change at the level of the heart, right? It's how we speak to one another. The problem, again, is not that we have problems. The core issue is the way the desires of our heart dictate our response to each other in the midst of those problems. When we live for ourselves and not for God, we bite and devour one another. When our hearts are not ruled by the law of love, but by the desires of the sinful nature, and when we look to have our own desires and dreams and demands fulfilled, we will become angry and disappointed with one another and will beat one another with our words. Well, Galatians 5 goes on further there to give us helpful answers. In verses 16 through 18. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And he lists them here, and would jump down... To verse uh, 22, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So, um, so it's a step-by-step guide for what it means to speak to build up, not tear down our homes. We cannot ignore the practical concerns because we'll encounter them every day. I've said it many times, but that's the reality. Rather, we speak in these concerns in a way that promotes the interests of the king in the following way. We, we speak well by recognizing the war within, right? As long as that indwelling sin remains, there will be a war within our own hearts. We must always live aware of this conflict, because to forget the presence and power of indwelling sin will immediately lead to problems in our talk. We don't ever want to give in to the desires of the sinful nature as we talk. All of us wrestle with those conflicting desires. When something has gone wrong, we may desire that um, an appropriate godly solution be found, but our desires, other desires, are operating as well. We may desire to shift blame or separate ourselves from responsibility. We might desire to rehearse all the other times this person has failed us or if they have hurt us. We might desire to share the failure of this person with another. We might be jealous that someone else is getting the attention we think we deserve. We may feel bitter and filled with hatred towards someone who has consistently failed us. We might be filled with rage. We build our relationships and our homes up by saying no to any communication that would flow from those desires. We don't speak first by examining the situation, the needs of the other person, how they've hurt us. We look first at our own hearts. We examine ourselves Building up our homes means refusing to speak in any way that's contrary to what the Spirit is seeking to produce in me and others. As a believer, the most important thing in my life is the completion of God's work in me and those around me, to the praise of His glory. We never want to obstruct what He is doing as Redeemer in the little moments, those little moments when the kids are arguing in the back seat. We want to speak redemptive words to them. We want to speak kind words to them. We want to recognize that ultimately those moments don't belong to me, but to him. They are the workroom in which he does his work of sanctification. My job, your job, is then to be useful instruments in his redeeming hands. Anytime I speak out of my own sinful desires, I'm communicating in a way that's contrary to what the Spirit is seeking to produce. If I'm seeking to live consistently with the Spirit's work in me and not give room for the enemy... I must be willing to examine my talk with the mirror of the word of God. I want the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart to be pleasing to the Lord. So I look for those words, envy, jealous, pride words, dissension and division. I'm alert to words of selfishness, self-righteousness. I look for words that evidence impatience and irritation. And we have to go back to the heart. It's where they all are birthed, digging deeper, to see where those words are coming from. And then we have to talk about the cold shoulder, or maybe the silent treatment for days. Those are thinking wrong thoughts, right? Thinking wrong thoughts can be just as damaging as our words. I do not examine myself with a morbid, discouraged attitude of self-criticism. I do it with joy because the enjoying presence of the Spirit is with me. I don't have to live under the control of sinful nature any longer. I have been freed from being a slave of that. I must say no to any rationalization or blame-shifting or self-serving arguments that would excuse talk that is contrary to the work of the Spirit. And speaking redemptively means speaking in step with the Spirit. And in verse 25, keeping in step with the Spirit means a commitment to speak in a way that is consistent with His work in me and encourages this in another He's working to produce in us the fruit of the Spirit, right? And as I look at the difficult situations of life as sovereignly given opportunities to see this fruit mature in Him by His grace, difficulties are not obstacles then to the development of this fruit. They are opportunities to see it grow. I seek to give no place to the passions and desires of the sinful nature. Verse 24 Those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Notice that it's not a passive passage. It says, when we come to Christ, we crucify the passions and desire of the sinful nature. This passage directs us to consider an aspect of the gospel that's often omitted. The gospel is a glorious message of comforts of sin forgiven, condemnation lifted, relationship with God reconciled, spirit given, and eternity guaranteed. It's also a call to forsake living according to the cravings of the sinful nature, so that I might live for Christ. True salvation is not only about receiving comfort, it's also about answering that call. This once-for-all commitment to godly living, crucifying the passions and desires of the sinful nature, must then be lived out by the indwelling power of Christ in all relationships. To speak words that are shaped by the emotions and desires of the sinful nature is to deny Christ's Promise of freedom from sin's dominion, right? And our commitment to live as those who belong to him. I want my speech to be out of the powerful self-control that God has given me. The one who broke the bonds of our slavery to sin and who gave us the gift of his indwelling spirit. Our mouths can be used as instruments of righteousness. We say no to emotions and desires of the sinful nature. And chapter 6 right there in verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself. We must recognize that except for God's grace, we would be exactly where our, our husband is at the moment or our child. Thus we should respond to them with the same grace we have received. God loved us when we were unlovely. He has forgiven us in the face of repeated sin. We're also free to be gentle because we've, been given, we've given up any hope that any pressure or power or logic can change the heart. It's never the loudness of my voice or the power of my words or the drama of the moment, the strength of my vocabulary that causes a turning within people. Gentleness flows from knowing where our power lies. God can be, use whispered words to produce thunderous conviction in a heart. We want to think and speak well, but only because we want to be useful instruments in His hands, not because we trust our own skills to produce it. Gentle talk does not come from a person who is angry and looking to settle the score. It means comes from the person who is speaking not because of what he wants from you, but of what he wants for you. I am able to speak gently only when I am speaking not out of personal hurt or emotion, but out of self-sacrificing, redemptive love. I speak to you not because your sin has affected me but because it has ensnared you. I long to see you freed from its snare. I'm not on a mission of selfish confrontation, but loving rescue. And in some way, we all need this rescue daily. We want to speak as gentle, humble agents of restoration, as women who are committed to live by Christ's rule of love. Well, contentiousness is repeated warning in the home, as we have seen. But we also must remember our hope, on your outline, gospel hope for contentious women, and turn to First Peter one two twenty four. This is our last turning. First Peter two twenty four says And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin, immorality, idleness, contentiousness, harsh speaking, and live to righteousness. Thankful, contented, peaceable, for by his wounds you were healed. You've been forgiven, you've been made new, you've been clean, you're a new creation. Thinking on and praising the Lord for his character and for the gospel is another part of shepherding my heart throughout the day. The gospel helps me move from a performance relationship with God to one based on the sinless life and sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. It reminds me that from God's view, my relationship is not on how good or bad I have performed, how wise or foolish I have been, but upon the perfect goodness and death of Jesus and the resurrected Savior. The gospel frees me to honestly face and acknowledge my sin. If I do not, I will not see my need for him and continue to trust in self-righteousness. The good news reminds me that God no longer holds that sin against me.